Fire and Bones podcast. I'm Michael Crosswhite, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I am Nathan Loudon, the pastor of Millwood Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. Follow the podcast, rate it. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Why don't you just, why don't you start with just saying, first of all, what Simeon Trust is, so that when we refer to it, it it makes sense, because I don't think we talk too much about the conference itself as much as we did the content. Uh, Simeon Trust is an organization uh, started under the the purposes of training up the next generation of uh, Bible expositors. Uh, They're best known for their workshops, uh, which has three parts to it. Uh, their workshops have uh, instruction on hermeneutics, which is how to study and exposit and prepare a sermon according to the scriptures. <coughs> the other one is uh, they actually have expositions at the workshops where people are preaching the word as examples. And they have small groups where uh, you do work and you present your work uh, in the word and you get feedback and discuss the text and discuss uh, your work together so that you can get better. And that's where I was. I mean, my dates are running together now. Last week, week before, I was in Graham, Texas, doing a Simeon Trust workshop for two and a half days on the book of Ephesians. Hmm. Uh, and you and I have done a couple of them together, both of them in Austin, I think. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. seem to be uh, incredibly beneficial just um, at kind of honing in on the purpose, you know, of, of, of a given passage. And I think um, you, you guys were in Ephesians this past week. Is that right? Yeah, and I will have no quips about saying, having gone to three different seminaries, which isn't a brag, I have not had any hermeneutical equipping, no preaching preparation equipping that has been as helpful as Simeon Trust by far. It's on my calendar every single year. I go at least once. Uh, This year I'll have gone twice, and uh, it just keeps getting better and more helpful, I think. Yeah, I think too, just being able to sit around a table with other pastors who uh, are looking at the same passage you are and mm-hmm. are pointing out things that you either missed, didn't see, or 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 even just encouraging, you know, in, mm-hmm. like just telling you, um, you know, points of like, you know, oh, that was really, that was really helpful. That was really good. Even those kinds of things are encouraging and Mm-hmm. It's just even just the camaraderie of the event, sitting around yeah. other pastors looking at the Bible together, is uh, something you don't get to do at like conferences and things like that very often. You know, yeah, absolutely. That, that is a major difference between Simeon Trust and other preaching conferences. Is you actually have homework, you show up, you do work, you practice it in the workshop, and you are getting better. You're not just watching it; you're actually practicing the work itself. Uh, we actually had uh, uh, in my small group this this week. We had uh, several guys. Most of the guys in my group were all there for the first time. This is their first time to ever do anything like this. They didn't know what was going on, and we went through the first passage uh, where two guys presented their work, and it was going to be responded to. Guys are going to give feedback on it, and uh, in, in our in my groups, I tend to try to lean you know, away from just soft to really precise and helpful commentary and feedback. So we did that in the first group. And one of the guys who was there, he was a hospital chaplain. uh, So I don't know how much he actually even preaches. 
uh, week to week in the pulpit. I don't know. And he, uh, when it came his turn to present in the next small group, um, I was thinking either he's done and he's never coming back or he's excited. And he spoke up and before he presented his first worksheet and just said, the precise, helpful feedback and the humility of everyone at the group is one of the most encouraging things I've had in a long time. And mm. and we said some pointed, critical response to the brothers before that. Uh, but it was very clearly helpful and meant to build up and encouraging. And I, I have found myself, it, it I when it's done in love and it's constructive, it is life-giving. It's it, it doesn't take life; it gives it uh, to your preaching and to your confidence. Yeah, so it, it, it's a joy. I yeah, I mean, the, 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 it's pretty clear up front that like you you may get critiqued, you know, like not it's not all going to be oh that was so amazing oh that was good it may mm-hmm. be I think you missed the boat completely on this, you know, because um, it's mm-hmm. what it, yeah. You, yeah you find out that you know when it comes to understanding the word and communicating the word to God's people there there's some nuance to it i mean it's not you know you 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 need to open your eyes and really uh think about the words and and really analyze the way they work together which is the only way you can really gain insight into the word by the spirit's help is you're actually uh, reading and observing and seeking to understand what it actually means and what it meant in its original context and and translate that to today, right? I mean, so it's 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 a pointed like there are, there are objectives that we're gonna we're gonna go through and um, and sometimes mm-hmm. the criticism can be um, needed and good, but can also be uh, well sharp, right? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So you guys went 100%. through Ephesians this time and mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and so we wanted to kind of just do Ephesians 1, 1 to 14 and just talk about it, um, the treasure yeah. trove that's there. Let me let me read it first, and then we can uh, go yeah. through talking about um, some of the finer points of, of the things that you're, you're trying to discover in this passage. So, um, yeah. so Ephesians 1, 1 to 14, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So I think... Amen. Podcast over. That's pod, it. That's yeah, all that's you it. need. Just <laughs> That's it. That's all we need. So uh, I think this passage, correct me if I'm wrong, has probably been the subject of more debate over particularly over verse 4 and 5. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Those two verses probably have been pulled out of this and used as uh, perhaps devices to cudgel the opponent and (laughs) present Mm -hmm. two different sides of soteriology of salvation. And so... Uh, is that fair, or is it not? Should we broaden our horizons? What, what's what's your take? Yeah, it, it definitely is that passage. Uh, uh, you know, the word predestined is in there, uh, so it's it's definitely the you know the the Calvinists who are in the rage stage. This is an easy uh, weapon to yield uh, in in that uh, in that conversation. I think it is definitely there that that is part of the blessing that we have from God the Father in Jesus Christ. However, it is this is not necessarily specifically an election passage, verses three through fourteen. That's not the that's not the main thrust. This is one of the aspects of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, what's happening in verse uh, in verse four? Uh, my conviction, my understanding is that it is talking ab- about elective purposes and sovereign will in God to predestine people for himself. Whether you have God predestining a, a time of people, uh, and, or as dispensationalists will say in this passage, an administration of people, um, you can't get away from the fact that God is predestining people to an end from before the foundation of the world. You can't get outside of that from the words that are used in the passage. Uh, your particular application of that may come back and forth here and there and, and may expand or contract, um, but there's no way around it. The, the words are there, and that's, that's part of the meaning and the purpose of what Paul wants the Christians to know. I, I think if you step back and look at some of the structure and the scope of the text, you can kind of put that passage in its place and actually connect it to how God talks about Israel and see that it's not even new. It's not a New Testament doctrine. It's not a Calvinist doctrine that in the entire passage, Paul's actually pointing back to Israel uh, and and their experience. So the book of Ephesians, uh, written to the church in Ephesus, one of their main problems that they are facing is unity. Most of the uh, the chapters, most of the content from chapter 1, even including this passage from 1 all the way to the end of chapter 3, have to do with uh, Paul trying to see the church unified and seeking unity and being unified because Christ died to unify Jews and Gentiles, breaking down the wall of hostility, uh, making them citizens of the kingdom, making them together built up as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit in Ephesians uh, chapter 2. So when Paul begins this letter... Uh, we'll just walk through the passage and think about some things about structure, and then we can think about where that predestination aspect fits into Paul's overall emphasis. 
So you have in verse 3, we're going to skip the introduction just for the sake of time. Blessed be the God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. You will see the phrase, in Christ, 12 times, from verse 3 all the way through 14. So that means it's not important. That's a, Is that... <laughs> yeah, so it means it's just kind of an, just kind of an aside, yeah, just... right? That everything's in Christ. So everything God has given us, so he states it two different ways. He says it explicitly in verse 3. Every blessing God has given us, all the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places, whatever they are, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places comes to us in Christ. And that's the phrase you see, in Christ or through Christ. And then you you see it 11 more times in the passage. So that's a first clue to the structure here. It says it explicitly in verse 3. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he catalogs from chapter 1, verse 4 through 14, he catalogs 11 more things in detail that we have in Christ. So Christ could not be more central. And you look at the things that he says that we have in Christ. We are chosen in verse 4. We're chosen, not randomly, we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So I would say the emphasis of this passage is not first about the predestination itself, but it's about what God has done in Christ. You see in verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Uh, you see that in Christ is God's plan, verse 10, for the fullness of time. We see that in Christ is the unity of all things in heaven and in earth. Uh, in Christ, verse 11, we didn't just randomly obtain an inheritance. In Christ, we have, an, we have obtained an inheritance. Uh, verse 13, in him, in Christ, when you heard and you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So you were sealed with the Spirit in Christ. So everything that the Christian has, our election, our justification, our redemption, the entire plan of God from beginning of time to the end of time, uh, the inheritance that we have in future heaven and presence with God, the Holy Spirit, everything that we have is in and through Christ. And I would just say mention uh, two other structural things that are important in this passage. Uh, one of them is that it flows the process, the, uh, it flows the relationship of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So you have God acting in 4 through 6. He chose us. He adopted us. And then in verse 7, it begins to describe what we have in Christ specifically based on his work on the cross through his blood. And then toward the end of the passage, beginning in uh, verse 13, uh, when you heard the word of truth, you also... Uh, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So all of the spiritual blessings follow 12 in Christ, and it follows the three Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in regards to scope, everything that's in Christ includes everything towards the beginning of the passage before the foundation of the earth, and it ends toward the end of this passage with our future inheritance that we do not have possession of yet. Right in the middle of the passage is verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. 
so that everything God is doing for all time, all people, all places, God is doing it and achieving it through and in Jesus Christ. The centrality of Christ in the Christian's life and in the church's existence and meeting has only and can only be understated in the church. I mean, how, how can we even begin to fathom the totality of the centrality of Christ and everything God's doing? When he says uh, that we have time, forwards and backwards, space, heaven, and earth, everything, every time, it's in Christ. It could, it could not be more total. So and the that? last thing I would say... The last thing I would say, real quick, the last thing I would say is Paul is also using language that is familiar to Jews. So we got a Jew-Gentile relationship that's a central theme in the book of Ephesians, uh, which is why Paul went to prison in the first place in Acts 20, because he was said to have brought uh, Trophimus, the Ephesian, into into the temple, and they arrested him. He actually, I think he's defending uh, that in the book of Ephesians and preaching about that. Uh, but we follow... Uh, the process that we get in Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy as well uh, through the passage. We get the predestination, which uh, Moses reminds them of. You are not rich. You are not wealthy. You are not a great people in number. I chose you because of my love. Unconditional, my personal election. That's why I chose Israel. And then the passage ends with the promise that Israel has, their inheritance uh, that they have in God. So the it is in so many ways from the 12 in Christ, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the passage of time, the heavens and the earth, and using all of Israel's language to say everything God is doing for the church his, the, and for his plan for the fullness of time. It's all in Christ. It's in Christ, all of them. So there, he uses this uh, like plural language throughout. He chose us. Uh, in him, we. Um, mm-hmm. So just the first person plural. Um, and then at the end, um, uh, he says, um, he switches to second person plural. So he says, in mm-hmm. him, you also, when you heard the word of truth. And that starts in verse mm-hmm. 13. Mm-hmm. Um, so is, who's he talking to? two and about in three to 12 and then in 13 who is he talking about and is what he's saying from three to 12 also applicable to i would assume you also would be the church at ephesus is he mm-hmm. is that also are you are you suggesting there are you suggesting there could be a break from jewish old testament audience to new testament audience from verse 12 to 13 well that's what i'm asking i, I don't um well, my answer to that would be, you're the Greek expert, you tell me. <laughs> but um, Nathan, I how many don't times see... have I told you? How many times have I told you? <laughs> Our English translations are good. <laughs> uh, good, we'll good. Then, then, I, then I can answer. I, I don't think that's... If, if that's there, it, it may be a difference in the language, but it certainly does not seem to be the emphasis. What, what Paul is giving the church... Uh, in Christ uh, begins in verse 3. <clears throat> I think he's talking about both of them. The the us 
seems to be through the book, Jews and Gentiles. And that it's not just us generic in the church, but he begins, verse 3 through 14, is a uniting work about the church so that when they, when the church in Ephesus is hearing us, they don't have an option but to hear us, Jews and Gentiles, together. That's the specific kind of implication of usness uh, through the uh, th- through the whole passage, which flows through chapter three, and you know the first command in chapter four even is uh, walk worthy of your calling, uh, you know, be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So the, you know the first command is to maintain that unity, and this. This doctrine isn't just a salvation doctrine. Uh, the usness is a big part of it. It's a big theme in chapters one through three. So I, I don't have a reason in my mind to, to think that uh, there's an audience shift from twelve to thirteen. Well, and I think too, it, it's if you continue reading on in the rest of the book of Ephesians, which is kind of what you're getting at, um, it. it it would not serve his argument at all in chapter one to separate them and give them two different gifts. So I've heard, I've heard mm-hmm. some arguments around, you know, what he chose is that the Jews would be saved through Christ. Um, and then the Gentiles kind of engrafted in, and these are talking about groups of people and not, individuals this is an individual predestination it is the way people would be saved that that was what was predestined and um but if you notice like in chapter two he says he's talking about how they were beforehand gentiles were separated Mm -hmm. from christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel Mm -hmm. and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without god Mm -hmm. in the world but now Mm -hmm. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's 2, 12, and 13. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. you know, he goes on to talk about he is our peace and, and that. And so then he says, um, in whom, so so you're built on, you're no longer strangers, 19. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household mm-hmm. of God built on the mm-hmm. foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place of uh, for God by the Spirit. So it seems like Paul's MO throughout the entire book is to kind of is to kind of say, this is what is true of the Jews. Surprise, surprise, Gentiles too. Like it's sort of that the mm-hmm. way he ends those little paragraphs in him, you also, you also, when you heard the word, mm-hmm. the, you're, it's like this way of kind of emphasizing that you thought all of these things would be true of the Jews, and it's no spoiler that it would be true mm-hmm. of, of the Jewish people, that God would save them this way. But this is the big reveal, the big shocker, the mm-hmm. mystery hidden for the ages that he says in chapter 3, verse 9, uh, in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Um, mm-hmm. So, and, and, and what was that? The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what he's reiterating in three is that all of those things I said in one are 
that is the mystery that that was hidden for the ages that the Gentiles are included in that whole thing too. So it doesn't it would undercut his his war, whole work if he's separating them out here. In fact, what he does in the rest of the book is tie them together and say, no, the thirteen in him you also they apply to all the way back to the beginning of this book to the very the very beginning. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it seems like he's he's relating the two, and they're not they're not separate at least for that reason. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, the the phrase in Christ, as you mentioned in chapter two, it it flows through the book, but even but most especially in chapters one through three, that it's. Uh, like you said in verse 13, but now in Christ, it's not just now a new plan, now a, a new way of doing things. I was doing things like that before, now I'm going to do things like this. Everything is in Christ by the blood of Christ. It's The, the wall is broken down in his flesh. It, it's him. That we were far off, he came and preached good news. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. In him, verse 222, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The in himness of the Christian life and what the gospel means. Um, I was deeply convicted at Simeon Trust, the... The gross, incredible—that's uh, the wrong word—but the just the the totality of in Christness in Paul's thinking about the church, and uh, as a preacher, just moved to to not think about preaching as where am I going to put the gospel application this week, you know, um, where am I going to like you know preach the Bible, but make sure Jesus is in there too, <laughs> versus. Uh, what I already know is that, uh, like Jesus says himself in Luke 24, all the Psalms and the and the prophets and the law, they're all about him. The whole thing's about him. The whole plan's about him. The whole church is about him. Uh, everything we do, say, speak, think, uh, is supposed to be in, from, through, and to him. The whole world is created by, through, and for him. I mean, the, the in-himness of Christ uh, can we can we ex- over exaggerate it? Can we can we search it and get bored with it? Uh, I, I think it's impossible. I, I don't think we can we can overestimate that. So if if I'm, I want to connect this to, um, just like my life, right? What is it mm-hmm. if if I'm just average Joe Christian? Going to work, mm-hmm. coming home, that kind of thing. What does the centrality of Christ mean, actually, for my life? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, because I think that I think that oh, phrase, yeah. the centrality of Christ, that that uh, that put. If I could imagine a, a pastor saying, you know, Christ is in in, in the center of everything. I think mm-hmm. every church out mm-hmm. there would say that they were Christ centered. Um, just about anyway, I think, mm-hmm. uh, your average Christian would go, yeah, I mean, I, I, I try to live a Christ centered life, whatever that means, you know? Um, mm-hmm. but, but, but what is it 
What does it mean to actually center your life around Christ? Or what does the centrality of Christ actually mean? Good question. And, you know, one thing I would say is it's not, it's definitely not first a command, as in you should make Christ center. That's a, that's the first mistake you can make, I think. Yeah. Uh, where the the Christian's job is to make Christ central, and it can become a pride. We're a Christ-centered church. I'm looking for a Christ-centered church. I'm looking for a Christ-centered uh, life group. We don't make Christ the center. You can't make Jesus more the center. You can just figure it out that he is the center. I mean, whether, uh, you know, I, I love the way... Um, uh, what's his name in his his book Ethics Bonhoeffer? Uh, he he talked about the four mandates that God has given in the world: uh, government, marriage, uh, the church, and uh, there's one more: work, uh, labor. And his argument in all of those is that Christ is central in all of them, all things by through and for Him. And he he said a sentence that I just has ring, rung in my mind over and over through the years. Uh, as the Nazis are breathing down on him and he's hiding his work, he says the whole world is relative to Christ whether it knows it or not. Mm-hmm. Everyone is relative to Christ. Governments are relative to Christ. Marriages, they're all marriages are relative to Christ. That was the, that, that we, we learn later in Ephesians uh, 5 that the meaning of marriage, the meaning of marriage, the institution is, is in Christ. You don't. You're not supposed to make. It's not just Christians that you're making your life Christ-like. Like you're married, but you should have a Christ-like marriage. No, the meaning of marriage, the purpose of marriage, the mystery of marriage is Christ in the church from the beginning. That's how. That's Paul's theology going back to Genesis three, that he expounds in Ephesians five. So I think the first thing I would say is it's not something for us to grow to. It's not something for us to achieve. It's something for us to first realize. That everything is in Christ. That if we have anything as a Christian, it's in and through Christ. So first, that means we have to have a a, a knowledge, which is just when you get the knowledge, it's a half a step away to affection that everything is in Christ. So, for example, I'm not going to take too long on this, but if you go to the end of uh, chapter 3, uh, which is what I'm actually going to be preaching on uh, Sunday. Uh, definitely don't have time to go into this. Maybe another podcast to walk through the biblical theology of the temple from the Old Testament to the New Testament. I just want to be clear on something but Paul, real quick before you do that. Yeah. Just to be clear, you're not yeah. preaching Revelation this Sunday. Sorry. Stop. <laughs> we're done. Okay. Yeah, we're moving on. Uh, I'll be preaching on Revelation soon. And I'll be using the revelation definition of soon. Just so <laughs> it's imminent. Just so you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it. The, I will be in Revelation imminently. Um, so when you get to you got one more sermon. Ephesians just one. Is that what? <laughs> yeah, just just one more sermon, at, and that's it. And it's going to cover chapters sixteen through twenty. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> that'll, that'll make five total um, sermons spread out over three and a half years that you yeah. preach the revelation. Yeah. Uh, I can I can take this. I, I, this doesn't hurt my feelings. That's a long we're, series. We're, we're, we're good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I'm just. I, I can't. People can say, "Hey, how long did it take you to preach through Ephesians? Three years? How many sermons? Five. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's fine. I can take it. I can take it. 
So one of the things we heard last week at Simeon Trust that one of the small group leaders shared with one of the guys from our church who shared it with me was uh, the, the idea of looking for the controlling image in a book or in your passage. What's the picture that the author has in mind that he uses to explain himself? And I think the or one of the main controlling images to use that phrase in Ephesians, is the temple. Beginning in chapter 1, I think, but especially in 2, we start hearing some explicit temple language. Uh, You are the temple. You're being built into the temple uh, by God as a dwelling place through the Spirit. And when we get to chapter... There's built on the foundation. There's cornerstone, structure. Listen, once you... once you see it, it's under every verse. It feels like in Ephesians, you you can go too far, and I think I have. In a yeah, couple, I mean, he says he says in uh, twenty, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So it's like mm-hmm. um, you're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So like the church mm-hmm. is by its very nature. Um, a mm-hmm. temple in which the Lord dwells individually in his members and yeah. collectively he is with them always even to the end of the age I think that's even in Matthew mm-hmm. that I just preached a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. yeah yeah so how how does this apply to our life I mean in in if you I'm going to get to Ephesians 3 but even in Ephesians 1 uh, what do you consider to be your blessing in life like what's your wealth what's your inheritance is it your 401k not saying that doesn't matter in life. That's not you know doesn't have its place and importance. What family are you a part of? Who's your family? You you were adopted in Christ as sons. You know what what's your hope for justification in this world, for forgiveness of all of your sins? That's in Christ through His blood. Uh, what's your future hope? What's your certainty? All all of those things. Are, are in Christ. When we come to chapter 3, the the temple, um, I'm really skipping some time here that we would usually do in, in Bible study, but we're going to say the temple kind of gets built in, uh, in chapters 2 and 3. And then, just a little Bible quiz for you. In Exodus 40, after the tabernacle is raised uh, by Moses for the first time, what happens? Um, they try to enter. God descends and says, "No, you can't enter in." Right? Which yeah, it God comes and he f- God comes and fills the temple. That's how, or fills the tabernacle. That's how the book of Exodus ends. Yeah, the tabernacle is erected. God's glory, specifically, it says, God's glory fills the tabernacle. Yeah. In First Kings chapter eight, when the temple, the, the permanent structure is built, what happens? Same same deal. He dwells. Same thing. Yeah. God's glory comes and fills the temple. Now go straight into, for the sake of time, Ephesians three, nineteen. Uh, following the breadth, length, height, and depth language, which are as a measuring language, which several prophets were asked to do of the temple, and even John, I think, uh, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is Paul's prayer that you may be filled. With all the fullness of God, mm, yeah, I think there's room 
to think that Paul's still using temple language, that the filling is not as we would think in modern um, kind of charismatic terms, be filled and you know with it with a zeal and a passion and and, and over you know be overwhelmed by the uh, the experience of the Spirit, be be filled versus you know empty like that. But in terms of temple language, when the structure is built, what's going to fill it? When the temple is built, if you guys, if God's building the church into a dwelling place for Himself by the Spirit, what's going to fill it? And here he says, go back a few verses in verse 17, uh, he's praying that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. Dwell, you can go back to uh, John 1, which we were talking about earlier. Uh, He came and he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us is the word. So this dwelling has temple illusions as well. Christ dwells in your heart when we have the comprehension that goes past knowledge to our hearts, and our hearts are filled with Christ and with the love of Christ, then we, like the temple, are filled with all the fullness of God. So we are walking, living temples. There's other places in the book, in the New Testament where, where Paul refers to the New Testament church and New Testament Christians as uh, the temple. This means then that what Paul instructs us to do in the second half of the book, the living out of Christ in our hearts. So you see, for example, a good a, a good example is chapter five: be imitators of God as beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us. So the everything we have in Christ then flops become and, and becomes instruction to us to live as Christ, as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us. And shocker, more temple language, a fragrant offering. And sacrifice to God. And then he begins giving us instructions about sexual immorality, covetousness, which is idolatry. Teaches us how to walk in light, to live an exposed life, having nothing to be ashamed of. Talks us how to walk in wisdom. So Christ dwelling in our hearts, our comprehension of the love of Jesus Christ for us by his blood to forgive our sins becomes the motivation for the life outpouring of worship to God. That, that as the Jews would worship in the temple, as you would go to the temple and, and worship and sing, uh, as you sing the Psalms of Ascent on the way up to the temple, we sing with Christ dwelling in our hearts, Paul is saying. We, we sing with the love of Christ, being the fullness of God, filling everything. So that Christ is central in our worship, central in our lives, central in everything that we have hope for in the future, central in us being chosen. All of the instruction that Paul gives us for how to live is all in Christ. Uh, so it, it's, not, it, it's, not, it, it's not difficult to figure out, well, how does this apply? Uh, when you look at the second half of Ephesians, it's way more difficult to think. How does it? Where does it not apply? Like you, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to find, try really hard to find a, a time or a place 
Since Jesus is the plan for God in the fullness of time, heaven and earth, before the foundation of the earth, to our future inheritance. The, the, the burden will actually be on someone to find a time and place where the Christian's hope and the Christian's instruction is not in Christ. I mean, just name a time and place where your hope and your instruction is not in Christ. Yeah. You're going to have a hard time finding it. Yeah. So is it is it as the way of, of thinking about it, is it that our life only has meaning because of Christ mm-hmm. or it only has meaning in Christ? In other words, without Christ, everything terminates at death and has no transcendence whatsoever. But only in Christ does it have transcendence? Is it as simple as thinking of it that way? Um, are, you, are you referring to like annihilationism? Or are you referring to, what are you getting at? No, I'm saying like if it is the centrality of Christ in my life, is it, um, is, is that is that because in Christ things actually have permanence? Like Christ comes and restores um, or, or gives to us eternal life, right? Mm-hmm. Making, mm-hmm. Uh, establishing the kingdom of God uh, through his blood, uh, establishing mm-hmm. a people for himself um, that we would have eternal life. So mm-hmm. the centrality of Christ, it seems, ha- it correlates a lot to our salvation. In other words, mm-hmm. Christ is central because only in him do you have hope for the life to come. So. Mm-hmm. If if Christ isn't the center, then everything terminates at death, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's, there's general grace. You mean what's that? Yeah. You mean like in terms of general grace, the general application of God's grace ends at death? Yeah, I mean, what well, what I'm saying is like everything in life pivots around, revolves around, uh the the atonement yeah you the the meaning of your life is entirely and this is everyone every believer every non-believer every right. person in existence from uh, adam forward yeah their meaning and in, in existence is your relationship to christ right yeah yes so so literally everything in your entire life whether you're a believer or unbeliever will boil down to your place in Christ. Right. If you don't have Christ, you don't have adoption as sons. If you don't have Christ and believe in Christ, you don't have forgiveness of sins through his blood. If you don't have Christ, you don't have the Spirit. Uh, That's Romans 8 as well. That You you don't have uh, Christ, you cannot have the Spirit. You don't have Christ, you you have no future uh, inheritance uh, that the saints are enjoying. And your good works don't don't matter if they're not in Christ, for Christ, because of Christ. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I see what you're asking now, and I think the answer is yes. It's not just a kind of Christian, let's make Jesus center. Uh, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Everything that has come into being has come into being through Him. There was not one thing that has come into being that has not come into being through Him. By him, all things were made, heaven and earth. So, yeah, it's it's not even like a, well, it's it's central to Christianity. Mm-hmm. 
uh, Jesus is. It's right. Jesus is the center. Yeah. For the to unite everything in the. I mean, and that's in that's in the passage in Ephesians chapter one that uh, it says explicitly the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Every work God is doing in Christ. Right. Things in things in heaven and things on earth. There's not a thing. I think this is safe to say. You can correct me. God's saying there's not a thing I don't do. There's not a thing I do that's not in partnership is a weak word, uh, in conjunction through, with, by Christ. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it's. I think it, it, this is where things begin to change and where you begin to... Um, uh, feel probably the gravity of the situation that's being painted by Paul here, considering that he's lumping everybody into this, that, you know, whether, whether you're a Christian, I mean, obviously he's focusing obviously on the church, but whether you're a Christian or not, everything hinges on Christ. And maybe that's the right way to think about it is kind of mm-hmm. as that, that pin in the middle of the hinge you know that everything revolves mm-hmm. around him and mm-hmm. he is through yeah. all things and because everything in your life everything every work every Jesus says every careless mm-hmm. word every uh, mm-hmm. action will give an account every literally everything in your life christian or non-christian will have to submit ultimately to the judgment of Christ so ultimately it will all come back to to the relationship to him. And so I, mm-hmm. I the reason that I think that that's tremendously important and it causes, honestly, it's like a huge kind of mind shift for most people or should be as we think about it is we we often, I think, are tempted to to look around at the world that we're in. You know, the, the uh, America, the Amer- Americans founding documents is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right, that is the kind of the central overriding premise of like everyone has that that right. You pursue that, and so like we've kind of taken that to be, um, look, I'm trying to make the best life that I can for my children. I'm trying mm-hmm. to make the best life that mm-hmm. I can for my family. Um, mm-hmm. Put food on the table, things like that. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. The Bible commends those things. I, I get all that, but but the shift is that no, actually everything in your life is actually about someone else it's not about yes. you Abs- yep absolutely and, and and that is the and, i think and, that is the watch. trick that the world plays on us mm-hmm. is that that this thing is about me or this is quote unquote my life and this yes. this whole thing is revolving like I mean, your your thoughts are mostly going to be consumed with your own experience and you're going to drive down the road and you're going to be thinking about how this car is comfortable for you and how, uh, you know, the, the house yep. that you live in is, is it right for you and your family? And like everything is sort of revolving around you in your own head. Mm-hmm. And then Paul comes in and basically says, actually, no, you are a subset of him. Everything is about mm-hmm. him. And everyone mm-hmm. is going to submit to him. And everyone mm-hmm. is going to give their, uh, all of their, uh, an account for all of their life to him. 
He is going to be the judge mm-hmm. of all things. In him, everything holds together. In him, everything has its meaning. In him, all the promises of God find their yes. Um, mm-hmm. that, that literally everything in your life is actually about him. And mm-hmm. the only thing that really matters is how all that you are connects to him. Mm-hmm. Right, like it's yeah, so and it basically boils down to, to yeah, yeah. And in in Ephesians, I mean, this is profound to consider. Paul is not speaking to non Christians, trying to get them to believe and trust in Jesus. Yeah, Paul is speaking to Christians, teaching and praying that they would know what they have in Christ, and that they would know the centrality of Christ. So at the end of chapter 3, Paul's prayer is that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. You need to know more of what you already know. You need to know the fullness. And Paul is praying that God will give them the strength to comprehend the love of Christ who's dwelling in you. And then when you go when you go through the command this this was instructive to me last week as well <clears throat> that this is you know I, I have known for a while that most of the New Testament epistles have a doctrinal front half and an instructional back half. So first three chapters doctrine, next three chapters in Ephesians are instructional, right? Yeah. But the in Christ continues through the instructions that every everything we do has Christ at it. And so Christ doesn't stay back there in the doctrine. And Jesus doesn't stay back there in forgives you of sins, but now you have kind of all these arbitrary rules to follow. Now now you have all these laws that God wants you to follow. Thank God Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but now let's go obey some rules. No, Jesus is the center. For the rest of the book as well. So if you keep you keep following through chapter four. It's it's Christ's gifts that are given to the church for the building up. What are we trying to build up as a church? What are you doing at your church? What are you trying to build up? What are you hoping grows? It's not more people. It's it's not a bigger building. It's building up the body of Christ. And what's the purpose of maturity? Chapter four, verse thirteen. That when the body grows up, we would reach the stature, the fullness of Christ, that we'd have the maturity of Jesus Christ. And as you go through the instructions on how to learn, Paul says, don't walk in darkness like the Gentiles. That's not how you learned Christ. Don't, don't do that. You get down to chapter uh, 432, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Because that's good? No, specifically, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Walk in love as Christ loved us. He, he keeps talking about Christ. Those who walk in sexual morality, who are impure and who are covetous, verse 5, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What's my marriage? What's your marriage about? What is marriage about? Marriage isn't even just a, hey, a good way to do marriage is kind of the Christ uh, church, church model. It's even bigger than that. Paul says the mystery of marriage, the two coming together holding fast to one another, refers to Christ and the church from the beginning. 
We, we could keep going. The father-son relationship, the bond-servant-slave-master relationship, the armor of God, it's Christ. It's in Christ. So it, it's impossible to overestimate, and it's impossible to find a corner of your life where the blessing that you have from God, the free gift, the gracious inheritance, the redemption of sin, that anything you have doesn't come from Christ. And it's impossible to find a command or a worship or a purpose that doesn't have Christ as uh, the source and the example for how we live. It, it's, impo- it's impossible because Christ is Christianity. He's it. He's, he's the fullness. He, he, he's, he is the thing that unites all of God's plan for the fullness of time, beginning to end, and things from heaven to earth. All space, all time, in Christ. Everything God does, everything we're supposed to do, in Christ. And of course, it's true when you say he is Christianity. But if it's true what you've what you're saying, he's more than that. He, mm-hmm. like, what what would, I mean, he is almost you could say even transcends a religious ex- expression in some sense. I don't mean that in a yeah. liberal sense. Uh, I mean, he, I mean that he he's a, relative a, to the whole world, yeah. whether they know it or not. Yeah. But I think what's helpful about Ephesians is. Paul is understanding. The, the the church knows a little bit about Jesus. Even though he was there, what, was he in 18 months or three years? Which one was he was in Ephesus? Yeah. Uh, he, and he's still writing back to them going, you guys need to know Jesus and everything that comes from him and through him in all of our lives and how they are to him. Yeah. Uh, the centrality of it. Cause, because, the, because Christians don't know. Yeah. You know? The, the world obviously doesn't know. But Paul's writing to Christians and praying that they would know the riches of his glory in Christ, that they would know the immeasurable power of his greatness. And how, how do we, you know, it's just, you, you can't, it's in every single chapter. You, you go back to his prayer at the end of chapter 1. He's uh, praying for the church uh, that the God of the Lord Jesus Christ would give you a spirit of wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of Christ that we would have revealed knowledge of Christ as Christians so that we would know to the hope to which we've been called and what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe and what is Paul's explanation of God's power is it moving mountains giving you a parking place is it getting you pregnant is it giving you a check in the mail or giving you that the example for God's immeasurable unimaginable power is that he rose Jesus from the dead. Yeah. That's the example for God's power. Yeah. That Jesus rose from the dead. You you want an example in your life for what is God's power for you today. Yeah. He rose Jesus from the dead. Yeah. Oh that we would that God would help us see the greatness of his power. And, I mean, and just think about how practical this is for people when you're counseling and when we're preaching and they're wondering what's God what's where's what's God doing? What can God do? What will God do? Yeah. You want to you want to explore the greatness of God's power? You don't need to look to the clouds or to your calendar next week. Look to God raising Jesus from the dead and pray that he will help you see the immeasurable greatness of his power in raising Jesus from the dead. Yeah. Um not to shift gears too too drastically, but I'm going to I'm starting a series through the book of Philippians this this coming Sunday, and mm-hmm. uh, I've 
the sermon series I've titled The Christ-Centered Life. And uh, because I think maybe somewhat ironically, um, when I planned that, didn't know we were going to have this conversation on this day, but um, that I think Paul is doing something very similar in Philippians, not in the same way, Mm -hmm. but this is really a theme running through most of what Paul writes that, um, I mean, as the case in, in Ephesians would, would make you realize that, yeah, I mean, if life is really Christ centered, then all of his writings are going to be Christ centered too, you know? So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, but he seems to focus on that in, um, in all throughout the book of Philippians and the grounding for the church of Philippi to be united is the faith that, they have in Christ. Um, their ability mm-hmm. to be humble is precisely because of Christ's humility. Um, mm-hmm. That God is the one at work in them, um, and he who, he who began the good work is going to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, that so that so basically their whole life of holiness is a seal from Him that He's going to produce. Um, that um they yeah so all of their all of their i'm just kind of looking through the book right now like all of the commands all of the thoughts all of the encouragements all of the exhortations throughout the entire book is you know to live is christ which is a weird statement to make and a Mm -hmm. weird phrasing Mm -hmm. to live is Mm -hmm. christ um and you you can only phrase it that way if it is the meaning and purpose and center of life. If he is the meaning, purpose, and center of life, right? Mm. That's what, mm-hmm. you know. You, so, so I've just I'll say all that to just say that it, the theme that we're looking at in in Ephesians carries through to other letters that Paul's writing, and and maybe in slightly different ways, but it's certainly mm-hmm. there. Agree? Disagree? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, stated in a sentence. Succinctly, I, I'm tracking with you. Well, why would why would you want me to do that? <laughs> um, um, that the centrality of Christ is present in in the book of Philippians, in several other mm-hmm. of the letters that Paul writes, as he is, you know, pointing out the centrality of Christ in Ephesians. He's doing the same thing in other books. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It it might be unique in Ephesians in that it is, you know, the length of the book and the frequency of that focus. But if I mean, when you go through Romans, um, that's the answer Paul's making. You might not find that phrase as often or as crammed into passages, but. Yeah, it's not like, oh, this is the Ephesians, you know, this is the book about the centrality of Christ. Nope. Uh, Read read Revelation. Uh, You you get into the center of the throne, you get into uh, into heaven, and what's there? Lamb being worshipped at the throne. Yeah. So, yeah, you can't get away, you can't get away from it. Yeah. Yeah, so then let me, let's go back to chapter 1. And mm-hmm. and kind of close us out where we sort of began. How ironic mm-hmm. is it that four and verse four and five of chapter one 
mm-hmm. would become such a point of contention amongst mm-hmm. Christians. Mm-hmm. You find irony in that? Tragedy in that? Uh, um, yeah, I, I think... I think tragedy would be closer to the word because it reveals our propensity for debate and the polarization that we hate in politics right now. We see the same heart when we find doctrine and cling to it and love it, and we we miss the richness of Christ. It's kind of like driving up in a Ferrari and everyone arguing about the, the meaning and the purpose of the handle on the door. Um... Yeah, that's that's a really nice door handle. There's a big engine in there, <laughs> and this car can go fast, and it's beautiful. I don't know. If this is good. This might, this might be like my consumerism or my my this my worldly dreams analogy. coming out here as an illustration. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like you have this you have this whole store full of jewels, and you're arguing about the meaning of that one over there, and it's important. I'm not saying it's not important. Um, but it is definitely evidence that we that e- even high theologians, not just the uh, you know the coffee shop T-shirt buyers who love to put Philippians four thirteen on their coffee mug, even the highest theologians and those who claim to be or who are truly are uh, can can find some verses and find a find a uh, you know a, a stump to stand on um, rather than a, a Christ to hope in. And when you when you put it in its context, you can go. Maybe we disagree about this. Maybe we maybe we're not even the same on this. But it is pretty difficult to get away from the centrality of Christ in this passage, which is the main point. But see, I th- I so like I would I would push it a little bit further probably than you would. I the reason that I think you always do. <laughs> the the reason I think that's so catastrophic, and it's not just a tragedy; it's a travesty, is mm-hmm. precisely because. These two verses, they don't just they don't just become merely points of contention over which people argue. They're actually reasons people divide churches. They literally mm-hmm. split them down the middle. So they have either a Calvinist pastor or they have a Armenian pastor, and mm-hmm. they cannot stand being under his leadership and so they leave. Or there's mm-hmm. groups of Calvinists in churches, there's groups of Arminian to hate each other. They can't get along. So this is mm-hmm. not, it, it would be one thing if this was like a point of contention where all of our Friday night Bible fights come down to this, you know, mm-hmm. but that's not what's happening. What's happening is that churches mm-hmm. will actually split top to bottom precisely over the interpretation of verses four and five. And yeah, which is ironic because... The entire book, <clears throat> the entire context is is supposed to be unity. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and both sides are to yeah. blame for that. I mean, there's definitely people on on both sides that are that sort of bludgeon the other side or take their their mm-hmm. verses that they want to use and they they bludgeon the other side to death. And so mm-hmm. certainly that's not a that's not one side versus another side or anything like that. And it's not as though that the the, mm-hmm. the distinguishing you know factors of these verses and like what what the actual real meaning and things like that. It's not that they aren't uh, worth it and that they aren't mm-hmm. helpful and that we need mm-hmm. to understand them. But mm-hmm. it's, and and that there can't be some room for disagreement or some debate over how we mm-hmm. understand them. Even sometimes, a, you mm-hmm. know, a passionate but loving debate. 
can be had over mm-hmm. stuff like that. I, I get that, and that's helpful. But mm-hmm. we're talking about what Paul is saying here and what he ends up getting to the meaning of all of this in four and following it has everything to do with the unity of the church every every aspect of your life revolves around christ and your life together is being built together don't let any obscene talk come out of your mouth no grumbling no complaining in philippians you know yeah this all needs to be things that and he says in ephesians that build up that contribute to the overall health and productivity and vibrancy of the church yep. since it revolves and he, around here's life. how I think here's how here's how far I'll go farther than you how about <laughs> that I think it's not just ironic it's not just tragic and it's not just sad to divide over the work of Christ and an interpretation of the work of Christ to divide over your take on a book that was seeking to unite the church through the work of Christ it's opposed to Christ. Mm-hmm. It's opposed to the work of the gospel. The The whole point is unity around Christ. And if you let... Interp- and obviously there's... I mean, we think Paul had an, a, a good, godly, amicable break from John Mark. And that was redeemed in the end. And uh, maybe there is a time when uh, church members... Uh, should start new churches or leave a church and go to a different church. We're not saying that there's no reason that you uh, can't ever have any differences, but it seems to significantly raise the bar for what you would be willing to do that over if, uh, in, in this work, if the meaning of Christ and the meaning of the gospel so if we're thinking about our Simeon Trust worksheet, the gospel application generally through the book of Rome, uh, through the book of Ephesians, isn't primarily justification through faith. That's there and it's very prevalent. It's unity in Christ. Hmm. That, that's the gospel application. The gospel, Jesus crucified for sins, the fruit of that is a unified church. And you know, maybe a good last word here would just be uh, chapter 4, he calls us to to unity. He calls us to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. And then here's where he, he here's where he, how he responds to that. There's one body. There's one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God. And Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. There's not two, there's not three, there's not thousands. One. One body. One Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Fire and Bones podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing or following the show on your favorite listening platform so you can be notified every time a new episode is released. Consider leaving us a generous review if that's an option for you. And most importantly, share this podcast with someone that you think might benefit from it. Be sure to check the show notes for any relevant links, including our contact information. Feel free to reach out to us with any questions you might have. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Fire and Bones podcast.